Thank you for joining our podcast about virtual wards. My name is Dr. Tim Taylor. I work for NHS England, and I'm also a practicing doctor in one of the hospitals here. We've gathered around the microphones today to talk a little bit about virtual wards. We've come to the Herefordshire and Worcestershire Integrated Care System, and we're going to ask them what's been going on and why virtual wards are important to us all. Without further ado, Dr. Will Taylor, I'm going to come to you first as the Chief Medical Officer for your Integrated Care System. What's a virtual ward then? Thanks, Tim. I think that's a really, really interesting question and probably one with no single right answer. I think as we've worked through the practicality of what is a virtual ward, there's a few things we've discovered. One is that actually the technological enablement part of it is a component, it's an enabler, but it's not a defining characteristic, I think, of a virtual ward. The other is, is that actually there is a spectrum here that of patients who some need quite a lot of medical input from a a doctor of some kind, not always a consultant, actually a GP with special interest can be there, but some actually just need a bit more input from um, advanced nurse practitioners and things like that. So at the end of that, what you find is that a virtual ward is, is part of a spectrum. This includes the urgent care response and systems, that includes advanced offers to nursing homes and includes um, some of the SDEC work on the front door of hospitals. What's ESTEC, by the way? So the same day emergency care offer that actually sits within the front doors of hospitals and having frailty teams within that front door. And it's very difficult sometimes now to put a piece of paper and say, right, this is where virtual wards stop and same day emergency care in the community starts. Thanks. So Florence, I'm going to come to you next. You're a lead advanced clinical practitioner in the Herefordshire and Worcestershire region. From a very practical perspective, if I or a member of my family were in hospital, I'd not want to stay there any longer than I had to. However, when I am in a hospital, I have some expectation that I'm going to be cared for. I'll see nurses and doctors. I'll get tests and treatment that I need fairly quickly. How does that caring bit work in practice if I was to be moved to one of the virtual wards that Will has described in your system? Yeah, thanks, Tim. I think when from the start, when we were looking at designing our virtual ward, particularly our frailty virtual ward in Worcestershire, we really wanted to, from the outset to be very much integrated with our neighbourhood teams. So that core district nursing work that we do, our urgent community response work. So that's very much how we're operating at the moment. As Will alluded to earlier, we can look at the virtual technology side and how that enables care in the community. But equally, we need something on offer for people who maybe can't take their own vital signs at home or who aren't appropriate for virtual monitoring. So actually, with that in mind, we very much designed a system where we could put in HGA to help with things like personal hygiene and care if people needed it. We could have our district nursing going and also advanced clinical practitioners seeing the patients face to face, giving that reassurance to people at home that they're still getting that medical input and that knowledge and, and they're having the care at home. That makes sense. You said HCA in there. What are these three lecture acronyms that we so much love? So a healthcare assistant is an unregistered member of staff, so they're not a registered nurse or physio, etc., but they do absolutely support with the healthcare delivery. And are these the same sorts of people that I would see if I was on a ward myself or if a member of my family was on the ward? Yes, absolutely. So on a ward, traditionally, you'd have a, a team of healthcare assistants, nurses, therapists, doctors, pharmacists seeing you on the, on the ward. And we very much wanted to emulate that at home with the care we're giving on our virtual ward. So Florence, it sounds like if I was on a virtual ward, I could expect to get a really good level of care from the things that you've put in place there. I'm going to come to Heather McDonald now. Heather, you have the tricky role of being the programme lead for virtual care in your system. 
things like those that Florence has described have been around in part for a while with different names, hospital at home, care closer to home, step down care, the list goes on and on. Isn't this virtual ward just one of those management rebranding exercises? Yes and no, which is a typical management answer. So yes, it goes back to what Will said, that there's no right answer or definition for virtual ward. And as a system, that's what we've tried to engage with around what does it mean in our system. Florence sort of spoke about the, the pathways and Florence has worked really, really hard on integrating those pathways into secondary care, accessing same-day diagnostics, emergency blood, looking at the technology. And that's really helped push forward a previous definition of what a virtual ward was, which was somebody in the community being looked after. And actually what we're trying to do is develop that pathway, making it much more integrated with secondary care and much more supported so that we can take it to those next levels. And we've had lots of discussions around what other systems define as a virtual ward, which can be quite different to what we're we're defining. And what we're trying to do as our system is try and standardise that, particularly as well around trying to measure some of the acuity of the patients on the frailty virtual ward across, because we have a frailty virtual ward in Herefordshire and Worcestershire, and trying to understand what that acuity is like across both. What do you mean by acuity? So um, I don't know, Florence, or well, James, if you want to come in. James, uh, James Bartlett, thank you for joining us. You're the lead consultant for acute medicine at Y Valley. What does acuity mean? In simple terms, I think acuity means how seriously ill someone is or how complicated the care is. So how much looking after, if you like, they'll need in a practical sense when you're actually delivering the care. So Heather, from your perspective then, patients who need varying levels of care, you're comfortable that they're being looked after appropriately, safely, and that you have a good idea of what's going on in your system. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. A key thing that we we spoke about was people on a virtual ward had access to the same support test diagnostics that they would have in, in hospital. Previously, we've not really had those pathways. So actually, what we've had to do is work really hard to get those pathways in place so that there can be that same day access to the diagnostics, which wasn't as straightforward as we originally thought. So it's a truly virtual ward. Will, I'm going to come back to you. You're actually responsible for healthcare across your system. That's a really big ask. What sort of things are you keeping an eye on from the perspective of safety and quality? Birch wards for us was a new way of working. We, we hadn't done this. We'd done aspects of it before, as we'd alluded to before. We'd, we'd not worked like this. And when you start working in a different way, there are always risks. And we, we want to minimise those risks. We don't want to put our patients at risk just because we're trying a new way of working. So you start off by looking at actually where where has this been done elsewhere? How have they made a success of it? I know James and his team in Herefordshire did a huge amount of work before they came to launch, holding multiple workshops, as is, did Florence and that, the team in Worcestershire. Um, so it was a lot of, right, what are all the components that we need in place? What are the safety monitoring systems we need in place? What are the things we haven't thought of? But even then, you cannot anticipate every situation. When we talked about this, we talked about when we start, we don't want to start with a big bang. We want to start slow, test it with a few patients. We want to be really lined about this, really proactive. So 
it got to the point, and I think Florence and James will correct me, but they were almost discussing patients in a, a plan, do, study, act basis, PDSA basis, every day. So every single individual patient's their care through the virtual ward was talked through and learning from each individual in the early stages of it was then applied to how the virtual world went forward. So it was, it was really very much a, a rapid prototyping kind of model where we were making sure we were discussing each patient, making sure we understood the aspects around safety and quality that we were coming up and then changing almost within the pilot. I think the other thing that worked really, really well is we have been running a virtual steering group. Now, that's had two components to it. One is a bit about actually how we operationally delivering this. But the other thing is it's allowed us as a system from both Herefordshire and Worcestershire to come together to discuss the journeys of individual patients as a group and then also to share learning between the two systems. Virtual wards really are one of those pieces of true integration in systems, which is what ICBs were set up to try and stimulate. But when you are doing something that crosses organisational boundaries, often when things go wrong, it goes wrong across organisational boundaries. So having everybody from all the different organisations in the room to discuss any significant events, what we felt was really key. And that's where that steering group has really come into its own. But what I'd like to see coming out of that is, is a retained place where we can talk as a system about significant incidents in virtual wards and any quality issues that come up, because I think that's been a really important component of this and actually probably a model of how we do things in the future outside virtual wards, where more and more will be done across organisations, not within organisations. I think, yeah, just to echo, well, it's been a really good journey, I think, for us to be working collaboratively as a system. Virtual Wars has been that true option for actually look at what we're doing and how we deliver it together and kind of breaking down those boundaries that were there previously within the different organisations, particularly in Worcestershire, where we have separate organisations, acute hospitals and community services. And it's been great to collaborate together and co-design the pathways and looking at all those same day urgent diagnostics that we've been managing to get off the ground. And it's just been a really good collaboration, I think, and, and something we need to emulate and, and bring forward and other work we're doing. The other thing I think is really interesting when we're talking about quality and high safety and high quality is that for a long, long time, we've seen hospitals as a safe place to put people when they're ill. And what we are rapidly realising and have done over the last few years is that hospitals are often not the right place to put patients when they are ill. People are often much better and much more safely looked after in their own home where they don't decondition, they don't get hospital-acquired infections, and they are within their communities and with their relatives. When we're talking about high-quality safe services, we need to be more and more thinking about home should be the first default option, not hospital. And that is key to thinking about virtual wards. Yeah, absolutely. I think the virtual can really fit in with the getting it right first time agenda as well, particularly with our frailty patients where we know, as you alluded to, that they, they can decondition often when they go to hospital and often end up with more issues than they went in the first time. So actually getting it right the first time, we're hoping we can promote more independence, have less deconditioning and then better outcomes for patients. Thank you both. Lots to chew on there. Florence, you mentioned the getting it right first time piece of work. People on this podcast might not be aware that's a huge national program of making clinically led programs look at specific areas or pathways. And it combines data analysis with professional knowledge of those senior clinicians to examine how things are currently being done and how they could be improved. The other thing that both Will and Florence, you've mentioned, and James, I'm going to come to you here. Will mentioned this thing called deconditioning. 
There have been lots and lots of healthcare initiatives over the years to look at how we can prevent deconditioning in those that are susceptible to it. Can you help us understand why this is such a big thing and what deconditioning actually is? So I think of deconditioning. So this is something which is a, a, a practical problem of well-meaning, caring systems trying to look after people by making sure they're put to bed and looked after nicely with the sheets tucked up. So it's the opposite of training. So if you think about if you go out for a run, the first time you go for a run, it's terrible. If you go for a run every day, you get better at it. So you train, you condition yourself into a better condition. If you do less each day, then you do the opposite. So you go from being relatively fit and healthy. If you lie someone in bed and do nothing with them and you say you must stay in bed because you're poorly or in fact will bring you a commode instead of walking to the toilet or instead of going to make your own sandwich, you have food brought to you. These are all nice caring activities which keep you immobile, doing the opposite of training, making your muscles weaker, making you less able to look after yourself. And the problem with all of that is it is absolutely lethal, especially for frail people. We know that deconditioning will result in higher rates of um, serious illness and a shortened lifespan. So that well-meaning caring in hospital predominantly will tend to result in frailer people who do worse in every sense of the word. So I think everything that we're doing with the virtual wards is really an extension of what we've been doing over years, which is moving from the bed in hospital to the chair, which is things like same day emergency care, which was previously called ambulatory emergency care and has had various other iterations. But what that means is in the good old days, if you had a swollen leg and we thought you might have had a blood clot, we would have brought you into hospital, put you onto a drip of heparin, a blood thinning medication, done a scan a few days later, made sure you're nice and frail before we finally say you need some blood thinner to go home on. Now what we do is say, actually, we can bring you in the next day, do the scan the next day, get you onto tablets and get you straight home again. So actually, you've never needed to come into hospital other than just for that scan. And actually, increasingly, we can do even that in the community. So you're staying away from these very well-meaning but dangerous places called hospitals. So the next step is to go from a chair in a hospital to your living room chair. And so it's moving from bed to chair to armchair. And if we can do that, we can keep you at home. So instead of you having to come to my hospital to have your blood test done or coming to hospital to have the intravenous antibiotics or whatever else it is we think you need, we can send people to do those things for you. And in the meantime, you're making your own sandwich which you like, rather than the hospital food, which you don't, so you're not eating it. You can go to your own toilet, which you know where it is at night, so you don't trip over something and break your leg. And you are fitter and stronger, and presumably you're going to be happier at home because you've got all of your normal things around you. So all of those things help promote that healthy activity level whilst delivering that bit of care that you need. I think this is going to change, though, increasingly. We, we look at high-performing elsewheres often, and we say so-and-so does something really well. And that's what this other place, which is nothing like the place that's doing really well, that's what they need too. So I'm in Herefordshire, near to the Welsh border, and um, it's quite different to big urban centres with really good high-performing virtual wards, etc., with really good public transport and huge population densities and so on and so on and so on, which um, we don't have. We don't have many of those things. So what we are going to need is going to be something quite different to elsewhere. And those concepts in terms of what we think we want 
and what we actually need are going to be things that are evolutionary. So for us, there are simple things which we've changed recently, which couldn't have been done in inverted commas in the in the past, just a few weeks ago. Intravenous fluids in people's homes, we've managed to work that out. Intravenous fruzamide in the home, again, we've managed to work that out. These were insoluble problems for years. I'll be honest with you, our greatest ally in both of those two examples were patients who said, I'm not coming into hospital. And we said, oh, okay, maybe we can try and do this for you at home. And they said, that sounds great. And we said, okay, we'll have to work out how to do it. So it's forced us to rethink how we're doing it. And who's ever worked in a hospital will know that the really difficult patient to get home don't really fit neatly into any particular pathway or specialist. And they just stay in hospital because we as a system can't think of anything better to do with them. So we are increasingly using the things that we know we need to do in hospital to move those patients care along with them at home. And that is a really difficult thing to get your head round because actually in our heads, we think everyone in hospital needs to be there to begin with. And that's not true. If we're struggling to get our heads around what to do with this patient, we might as well do it with them in their own home where they're more comfortable and begin from that perspective and try and apply some of those things that we know help us in hospital in their own home. Heather, Will, just based on what James has said, it sounds like this is something that is going to continue to evolve in your system. Are you ready for the challenge? I think so. I think so. I think we are in a place now where we recognise the old way of working is no longer viable. Virtual wards and the spectrum of care that virtual wards sit on, this does include other forms of emergency response in the community that Florence and, and James have articulated, I think are here for the future. But they occupy that really sweet spot where we will be offering better quality care more efficiently to our populations. And that is no bad thing. And it is something we should really persevere with. I think we're, we've got clinically led and the strong clinical leadership around virtual wards, then yes, I think, I think they'll be here to stay. I think that we're, we're demonstrating because we've put the processes in place, got that wrapped around, I think we're, we're demonstrating that it is a, a safe alternative to being in hospital. And as James has really well articulated, in, in lots of ways, it's a better alternative. I think the key thing as well is it offers patients choice and a real choice as well. Previously, if they'd had, you know, some of the issues that we've been seeing on our virtual wards, such as falling and having a long lie on the floor, paramedics would point blank say, yes, you absolutely need to go to hospital here. We've managed to work that process and give them some IV fluids at home, which again, when I first started, everyone said, oh, that's impossible. We can't do that. Actually, we can. We, you know, how can we do it safely? We worked that through. And those patients have absolutely really valued that, that they've, you know, not had all that deconditioning that's gone on in hospital. They have the comfort of their own home. The family can come and see them whenever they want and eat their own meals. And it really just give that choice and I think particularly for patients with other disabilities as well with learning disabilities or dementia it actually it can make them much safer and much more viable at home where they have their own routines their own carers looking after them. I think that's really really important and I think the other thing this has demonstrated is, is the ability for us to recognise issues and barriers to caring for people in their own home but actually fairly rapidly come up with solutions and that's been very much about a team coming together and regularly discussing the individuals they've been caring for, identifying problems, and then coming up with collaborative co-designed solutions in a really dynamic way. And that's a really different way of thinking about things, but it, it is how it is how you make really good change. 
thank you so much to Florence, Heather, Will and James for your time. And thank you too to you for listening. If you'd like any further information about what we've been talking about today or this way of working in the NHS, please do go to the england.nhs.uk website. And if you search for virtual wards, there's a lot more detail there, as well as links to the relevant socials. It just remains for me to say, keep safe. Thank you all and goodbye. <laughs>